Somehow it got to be the end of December. Somehow it got to be the end of the year. But uh, that's really all right, because after every December is January, and after every year there's another one, and it just keeps going like that until it doesn't. And at that point, it's no longer your problem. So for tonight, on this uh, sixth episode of the Content Blues podcast, I'm going to talk not about time or end of time or anything so morbid of that. I'm going to talk about something much sillier, uh, which is kind of the life cycle of cinema. The idea that uh, a movie exists and grows and expands and builds an audience uh, well after the time it spends in theaters and how that's that time spent in theaters, which seems to be the valid movie time, has not really been the full and total valid movie time for a very long time. Uh, everybody knows that, so I'm not going to, to analyze this too much. But I am going to talk about uh, two movies that uh, are kind of living beyond their lifespan, uh, one of which is, is basically a cult movie, and the other one is something that got a lot of Oscar buzz and uh, is still hanging around with us as well. So uh, it's going to be a cinema-themed episode, just me chatting about some movies that have crossed my path and how I think they uh, describe the current... Uh, status of the art form. So uh, if that sort of thing interests you, then you should keep listening because that's the easiest thing you could possibly do. Turning it off and finding something else to listen to, that takes effort. I don't recommend it. Hang out for a while, huh? <sighs> Two films, as I said, both unlike in dignity. Uh, one is basically a cult classic, and we're going to talk about that one first. And even to call it a cult classic is probably uh, a compliment. It's just a movie I've seen talked about in certain segments of Twitter. Uh, and it's a movie that's on Netflix until uh, December 31st. So if you, uh, if you like what, I, what you're hearing about it when I talk about it, you should check it out. It's a 1984 movie called Streets of Fire which uh, was a flop in 1984 and uh, is now on Netflix, or at least for the next week. And uh, I've seen people talk about it with, uh, with great praise. And uh, that's kind of what got me to watch it, is uh, seeing some people talk about it on, on Twitter. And Cap caught it on Netflix, and I just did a rewatch today. And it is a, it is a fun movie. Uh, I like it a lot. Um, it's almost a cult movie. It's a strange movie, though. Uh, you can sort of see, even if you enjoy it, why it bombed. It's, uh, it's a bit odd for its time. It takes itself a little more seriously than it should, given how, uh, genre-bending it is and how completely stylized and distorted from reality it is. Um... But then again, if it took itself less seriously, maybe that wouldn't have worked less, and I, I would like it less. It bills itself as a rock and roll fable, um, which I suppose it is. There's a lot of music in it of a particular kind. A better way to understand uh, Streets of Fire 
would be as a love letter from the 1980s to the 1950s, which was not really that uncommon uh, back in the day. One of the, the lost motifs of the 80s was the amount of nostalgia that was going on during them, but it wasn't 80s nostalgia. It was 50s nostalgia. 50s nostalgia had a really good run in the uh, latter quarter of the 20th century, pretty much from the mid-70s to the late 80s, the 50s were very heavily nostalgized. Uh, you see it in things like Back to the Future and uh, Stand By Me. There was a lot of uh, wistful reminiscence and sometimes re-examining of that particular uh, Technicolor era. But uh, Streets of Fire is is a piece from that. The uh, the the clothes are 1950s. The hair is 1980s. The uh, <laughs> the music is 1950s. The uh, the urban decay is 1980s, and it doesn't not work. Um, it doesn't not work. It has a very punk vibe to it which makes sense because there's a lot of greaser in uh in the early punk aesthetic which is not to say that streets of fire is in any way punk although that word gets used a lot in uh in the 1950s sense of the term but uh it's 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 a fun movie it's it's a love letter from the 80s to the 50s and now 40 years removed to the 80s that has double the quaintness so what is it about? It's uh, about a guy who goes and rescues his girl from some biker gangs, and she's a singer, so there's she's got a whole career set out for her. So she's not really his girl anymore, but she is, but she's not, but she is, but she's not. And it's got a fun cast, uh, mostly people you've heard of and people you'd recognize if you see other movies from that era. It's got uh, Willem Dafoe playing the heavy. It's got Diane Lane as the girl. Uh, Rick Moranis. Remember Rick Moranis? Rick Moranis is in it, and he's not exactly the uh, the foil. He's not. It's not really a comic role for him. It's he's almost a tough guy if you can wrap your mind around that. Tough guy Rick Moranis. And this came out in the same year as Ghostbusters. Uh, so Rick Moranis was working in the 80s. Good for him. Good for him. So basically, uh, guy loses girl, bikers kidnap girl to make her sing or something. Uh, guy fights for girl, guy fights bikers, bikers lose. Hooray! Um... It's it's a film that works best when it's uh, going full bore and uh, doesn't work great at all when it pauses to try to establish emotions. Um, the uh, the romance part of it is is almost an afterthought. It's not the most uh, believable on screen romance in the history of the world, but it's not terrible. It's just good enough to be believable. And uh, that makes that makes the movie a, a, a plus one for me. Um, 
like I said, the best parts of the movie are when it's it's going full tilt. The action scenes are great. Um, they there's there's a wonderful sense of creating chaos in the action scenes. They feel very visceral and they feel very real. Uh, the final fight between uh, the showdown between the good guy and the bad guy. Uh, between Michael Pare and Willem Dafoe is um, it's a great, great fight to watch. Uh, they fight with big hammers <laughs> because, of course, they do. And uh, <laughs> by the time you get to the end of the movie, this makes complete sense. But they fight with giant hammers, and the way the scenes are shot are very chaotic and circling and cyclical. So. To watch the scene is to feel what it would be like to fight a guy with giant hammers. Swinging giant off-balance hammers at each other. Swirling and trying to smash the other guy's head in. And it feels very cyclical and swirly and chaotic. And it looks really good. And uh, all the action scenes go on just long enough. And don't wear out their welcome. Just to the point where you think, okay, this is, should probably wrap up. That's when it wraps up and we get to a nice conclusion. Um, there's a lot of nice touches in this. Uh, <laughs> like when Willem Dafoe is introduced, you see his face for the first time and the lights come up on his face and he looks like uh, the devil in Fantasia. It's, it's really a fun villainous turn for Willem Dafoe. He's great in this. He's he's uh it's it's a low almost a low key performance from him, you know he's not wildly over the top, he's he he sits in the pocket of the role and just 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 exudes menace and it's nice it's nicely done. Um, this movie also has uh, Lee Ving, of uh, which is a very obscure thing. Lee Ving is best known as playing Mister Body in the Clue movie, which was another flop that came out this year. And uh, that's Lee Ving's primary claim to fame, but he he got his start in the uh, L.A. hardcore band Fear. Um, that's primarily what he's what he's known as, as, as a singer in a punk band. And he's, he, he does also does Menace really well in a, in a, in a growling, scratchy, uh, primal kind of way. He's much more like his his band persona in this movie than he is in Clue. He's not quite believable in Clue. He's just kind of oily, which I suppose fits for the movie, but you you do kind of wonder about him. Um, everyone talks like a tough guy in this movie. It It's almost to the point of being a parody, and they all talk like 1950s tough guys, and, and nobody really has... Uh, ever shows a whole lot of vulnerability, which is, um, you know, it's something you could make fun of if you wanted to, but uh, it fits what everybody's doing. This is a violent film, and, and it, people inhabit a violent world, and they, uh, they respond and speak with that kind of uh, mid-20th century, early 20th century toughness that circumstances forced on the population. Uh, people swung hammers at each other. People 
fought each other on motorcycles. People, I don't know if people ever actually did these things, but in our minds they did. So it, it works. It works as art. Um, there's a, there's a very MTV vibe to it as well. This is definitely an 80s movie. It's definitely the 80s looking at the 50s. It, it feels very MTV. There's almost, there's a song in the middle that has like, uh, with, with black cuts in it that, that looks very much like a music video and you're not sure why it's happening and then they, they kind of move for, away from it quickly. There's songs at the beginning and a big songs at the end and it's, um, it's full of big feelings, this movie. It's full of big feelings and tough guy talk and action scenes and uh, the characters are enjoyable genuinely enjoyable you're 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 probably thinking rick moranis is a tough guy i'm not buying it and you don't for most of the movie but he somehow makes himself uh ridiculous and believable and genuinely tough in a particular kind of way at the same time um and stuff blows up real good blows up real good uh it's one of those movies that doesn't lie in the title, Streets of Fire. The streets, they do set on fire. It does happen. And uh, and the movie keeps going. It doesn't pause a whole lot to waste time. The scenes are very uh, efficiently constructed and they establish what they need to establish and set up what they need to set up and then they keep going. Um, yeah, it's just a genuinely fun film to watch. I can't emphasize that enough. I think if you're a particular age and you remember the 80s as they actually were and not the uh, heavily nostalgized, romanticized version of the 80s, then you will appreciate this film more. If you've been drenching in 80s nostalgia for the last 20 years now, then this movie might seem very strange to you. But if you actually came up from that time and you actually remember what it was like and you like action movies and you like tough guy movies and you like uh, movies with songs in them and you like old-timey kind of rock and roll, it's got a very old-timey soundtrack, a lot of Rye Cooter and uh, the Blasters show up and... If you like that kind of thing, then this is your movie. This is the movie that you didn't know that you needed to see and was going to become one of your favorites. And it's already become one of my favorites. It's... I wouldn't call it a B movie. I would call it a B plus. You know? It's a, it's a low-budget movie, although maybe not necessarily low-budget in 1980s time. 14.5 million wasn't a, a big budget film in 1984, but it's not exactly a small budget for the time. But it was that uh, it was it was that mid tier budget film, and it, it did not make it money back. It only made like eight million dollars, which is a flop. And um, but I think it's worth uh, it's worth a viewing if you if you're a particular sort of person who likes a particular kind of movie. This will be right up your alley. It will scratch all of the itches. You will find yourself enjoying it, and uh, I, I cannot recommend it highly enough as uh, as a love letter 
from the 80s to the 50s as an action movie with crowds and biker gangs and things blowing up and somehow maintaining just enough of a touch of realism and fighting guys with hammers instead of a, a shootout at the end. Uh, the director is uh, Walter Hill, who is best known as the director of uh, 48 Hours. 48 Hours was his, his big claim to fame. Um, he also directed The Warriors, if you're into that. So if you really like The Warriors, this is like the next step up from The Warriors. Uh, the Warriors is a... Is basically a movie about uh, New York street gangs in the 1970s. Uh, it's a very 70s movie. It feels like the 70s. Uh, streets of Fire is the is the 80s vision of that, in a in a very heavily stylized, romanticized, and uh, music drenched way, in a different kind of way. But you can totally tell it's by the same guy who did the Warriors. And uh, you'll enjoy it on on that on that note. Streets of Fire. If you haven't checked it out, check it out. You've got a week to watch it free on Netflix. All right, the second movie I'm going to talk about is the movie that everybody heard of last year. Uh, got a bunch of nominations for Oscars last year, didn't win any. It's by a director that everybody's heard of, and that everybody knows, and it's got actors that everybody's heard of, and everybody knows, and when I first saw it, I didn't think it was all that great, but I've seen it a few more times, and I've started to like it more and more with each viewing. I am talking about The Irishman. Um which is a long movie to try to get to know. That was the first thing everybody said about it, the first thing I said about it. I didn't even watch it in one sitting the first time. I, I got to the Kennedy assassination part and I uh, said, that's a good stopping point. I was about halfway through, it's about halfway through. And I was like, eh, it's all right. It's about on the level of Casino, which is a Scorsese movie that I watched a bunch of times, I got into. Watched it a lot for a particular period. I do that with movies. I I kind of devour them. I kind of watch them over and over and over and over again because there's something in it that's that's hitting a nerve for me right now. I did that with Casino. I did it with Big Chill. I did it with Reservoir Dogs. I did it with Train Spotting. It just was one of those movies. Uh, the Irishman is not one of those movies, but it's a movie I have come back to. And enjoy on some level that I, I may not be fully cognizant of why, but I'm, I'm starting to, to get the hang and the feel of it. Um, Scorsese's a well-known filmmaker. I've seen a lot of his movies. I've seen a lot of his uh, early movies and a lot of the ones he did uh, throughout the 2000s with Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, he did some good ones. Uh, Shutter Island was probably my favorite. Which is not a movie I've I've rewatched a lot because it's 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 heavy. <laughs> I think I've I've watched it twice. It's heavy. It's you have to be in the mood for something like that. And I think 
Uh, I think when I'm in that mood, I think I'd rather end up watching uh, Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse. Because that's a little bit... There's a little more to that one. And it's a little weirder, which is always to be appreciated. One thing about Scorsese is he's not weird. He's uh, visceral and occasionally surprising, but he's never uh, he's never odd. He doesn't he doesn't explore the fantastic. He he explores the uh, the dark side of the human soul. That's pretty much what he does and has been doing since like Mean Streets. Um, the Irishman is certainly a film that's about that. I don't think anyone's ever going to like it as much as they like Goodfellas uh, because Goodfellas is a movie that uh, kind of like Streets of Fire was also uh, a 1980s, well, 1990 is when Goodfellas came out that was nostalgizing the, uh, the 50s, 60s, 70s, that whole classic mafia era. And uh, kind of enjoyed some of that. We weren't, uh, there weren't 8 million uh, mafia movies in 1990. There were only a couple. There was, you know, the Godfather trilogy. And um, yeah, I can't really think of a whole lot of other uh, mafia movies that, that made an impact. Um and, you know, The Godfather was a, a tragedy, a romance, and uh, Goodfellas is not that. Goodfellas is, is a movie about why does this thing exist? Why does it exist? Uh, and the reason that Goodfellas exists is because it fulfills a need. Uh, when people steal, they want to have security even when they steal. So they organize and create hierarchies and structures of crime. And that's how something like the Mafia exists. You steal, you pay up to the right people in the right way, and you are protected. And that's how the Mafia worked for guys who aren't even technically in it, um, which is what Goodfellas is about. Goodfellas is about the street-level guys doing street-level stuff. They're not connected they're, they are connected, but they're not made guys, so they're not really in. They're kind of on the outside looking in. They're lean and hungry. Um, but Goodfellas explains why. Wolf of Wall Street does the same thing, but with a comic turn. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street... Actually, I think Wolf of Wall Street is probably a better movie than Shutter Island. I, You know... Um, it explains why Wall Street exists and why guys like Jordan Belfort exists. And the reason that guys like Jordan Belfort exist is because everybody wants to make money without having to do any actual work, which is, you know, what Wall Street always promises. Um, just buy this thing and you will make a shitload of money. And that's ultimately what Wolf of Wall Street is about. This exists because we want it to. This exists because we need it to. Um, we want to make a bunch of money without doing any work, is what, uh, is what Wolf of Wall Street tells us. Goodfellas is very similar. The Irishman is not about that. The Irishman is about, uh, it's a movie about power. 
It's a movie about rumor. It is uh, even more than Goodfellas, a dirge for a lost time. It's funereal, the tone of it. Which, you know, happens when you have all your lead actors are all very old men. <laughs> that's, that's the biggest criticism I had of it the first time I sat through it, is, is how old they all are. And how dull it was to watch them. They were all kind of dull. Um, Pacino's the only one that's not dull in it, really. Pacino is still Pacino, and him playing Jimmy Hoffa, he, he really breathes life into that role. Um, but Joe Pesci is old. De Niro is old. Um, a lot of the other guys aren't old, but they're older than they were in their prime, and you notice it. And they move slower than they should be moving. There's a, there's a scene in The Irishman where De Niro's been, you know, digitally de-aged and he's, he's beating the snot out of a greengrocer and the camera pulls back from a distance, which makes the shot kind of ridiculous, especially as it makes it very painfully aware that you're watching an old man kicking somebody, flailing his arms like an old man, stiffly and without, you know, real portent or threat or menace. Or it's not like that scene in Goodfellas where, uh, you know, Henry Hill goes and marches across the street and pistol whips a guy in his driveway. That scene happens fast. It, it hits you. It's... Whoa, the scene in, in Irishman is is nothing like that. It's it's almost laughable watching De Niro flail his arms around. You don't buy it. It takes you out of it. It it's ridiculous. They For story purposes they needed that scene, but it's the scene that makes you wish that they hadn't used digitally de-aged actors and just hired younger actors to play the same roles, you know, like they did in Godfather 2. They should have just done that instead of uh instead of di digitally de-aging cuz it it's it doesn't quite work. It doesn't quite work. But one of the things the movie does well because it's a movie made by an older director and using older actors and when it gets to the to the meat of it and the weight of it and the weight of lost time and the weight of regret and the weight of guilt and the way in which power and the struggle for power forces men to do things that they don't really want to do but that they have to do or feel that they have to do in order to maintain themselves. Um, there's no regret in Goodfellas. Not really. Violence happens. It's unfortunate. It is what it is. But there's no regret. There's no sorrow. This is the movie about the sorrow. This is the movie about what happens when you feel the weight of the lives that you've destroyed on you. And in that respect, 
it's a much more moral film than Goodfellas is. Goodfellas is uh Goodfellas ends with with wishing that you could go back and do it all over again. No regrets. Uh this movie doesn't do that. This movie regrets everything. The loss of everything. Um uh, the people who ordered Jimmy Hoffa's death feel bad about it. And that's uh that's what that's what makes this film kind of interesting. And uh, even though it, it takes a long time to watch, it takes its time because it's not in a rush. It takes its time because you want to see everything unfold. And it does unfold like a Greek tragedy where there's no way of getting out of it. Um, things are happened almost because they're foreordained. It, it was foreordained that Jimmy Hoffa was going to be killed by the mafia from the minute that he got in to bed with him. It was that was that was always going to happen. Because in that kind of a situation, somebody has to hold the reins and somebody has to give way. And if nobody wants to do that, someone's gonna get shot. And everything else that happens is just an expression of that reality. Who's in power? Is Hoffa in power or is the mob in power? Once you have to ask that question, you know how it's going to be answered. So there's ideas in The Irishman that, uh, that raise it to the level of art, even though I didn't see it the first time I watched it. Um, it's definitely not as much fun to watch as some of uh, Scorsese's other movies. <coughs> they don't hit as hard. It doesn't make you laugh. It's not a funny movie where there's humor in it. It's a very sad movie. It's a sad movie full of sadness. And that can be a lot to take, especially if it's three hours long. So I completely understand why people didn't like this movie because I didn't like it the first time I watched it. I was like, eh, it's okay, but what? Why? But now... Um, and honestly, you know, you get tired of, of watching the same directors and the same actors getting praise heaped on them like uh, whipped cream by the same critics for the same reasons, doing the same things over and over and over again. Gets tiresome, gets old. So that was probably a contributing factor. It's like, we're going to watch De Niro and Joe Pesci and Al Pacino in another mob movie. Really? What what year is this? What year is this that this is what we're doing? But it's what we're doing. And so, you know, I kind of I kind of went in perhaps with some prejudice against it. Because you do get tired of the same kinds of movies that do the same kinds of things. But upon further examination, there's there's merit here. It gets better on repeated watchings. And it's still on Netflix, so you've got the time to rewatch it. So if you have uh, not enjoyed it, and uh, you're wondering if you you really gave it a fair chance, because there are definitely things about it that are unpleasant, 
and kind of repetitive. Uh, that that still of the night song is used, I think, too many times. I'm just gonna say that. Like Scorsese is usually good at picking great songs for his soundtracks to his movies, and we keep coming back to that still in the night song by the Coasters. I think it's the Coasters, and you're not a hundred percent sure why. Other than it's like the, the the funeral light motif for this man's life. But anyway, if you're wondering if you didn't really give it a fair shake, take a second look at it. Take a third look at it. Because the things that are, are being done in it are, are worth meditating on and thinking about. As a, as a kind of summation of a lot of what Scorsese has done over the course of his entire career, this is worth looking at. It's not the best thing he's ever done. It's not my favorite, but it's better than mediocre. That's what, uh, that's what I'm going to say about it. Okay, so what's my point? What do I have to say beyond these two movies are neat? You should watch them, check them out. And maybe that's all I have to say. Maybe that's all it's meaning. You know, watch Streets of Fire, watch The Irishman, check it out. Maybe you'll like it. Maybe that's all I have to say. But I was saying something about the life cycle of cinema. And uh, I think what's become clear and evident to everyone is that cinema's life cycle is almost endless. Um, especially with modern modes of consumption. Uh, back in the day, uh, back when Streets of Fire came out, you, you had only a short period of time to watch a movie for a movie to make an impact. You only had a set amount of time before you would, you would see it because, uh, you know, not very many people had VCRs even in, in, uh, in 1984 and those that did, there wasn't a big video rental industry yet to serve them. That was coming, but it hadn't gotten there yet. So when Streets of Fire came out, it uh, it had its its time in the box office, which was not very long because it didn't make a lot of money, and then it was gone. And that would be the end of it. That was the end of it, but it's not the end of it anymore because now something can be rediscovered because all of the streaming services are hungry for content. Netflix is always hungry to have new content, new things that can put on so that people can watch it so we're not just watching The Office over and over again, um, which I don't quite understand. Um, the Office is fine, but I, uh, there are other things to watch. Anyway, uh, so something that was gone uh, and wasn't bad enough to be like Mystery Science Theater 3000 fodder isn't a good bad movie, isn't a so bad it's good movie, but is just a movie that didn't find its audience at the time, can still sort of find a new audience. Now, cult movies have always existed, but I don't think I've ever heard of a movie starting to develop a cult audience almost 40 years after it was made. That's new. 
that's something new. And in the case of the Irishman, uh, despite what, what, what Scorsese has said about, about modern filmmaking and modern cinema, he was completely content to have his massive three-hour-long epic on Netflix, um, uh, which kind of everybody had to do last year. But that's helped it because it's helped people like me who are kind of like, whatever, be like, you know what, I'll, I'll give this a second go. And it can be more appreciated now. Things have infinite rewatchability, infinite rediscoverability, thanks to the internet, that they didn't have uh, back in the day. So the life cycle of cinema is almost endless now. Something can be made, forgotten, rediscovered, and voila, it can find an audience that it was denied. Or it can find appreciation that it was denied in its immediate run-up. Um, which is just one more reason why I think the Oscars are a terrible thing that should not even exist. Because the life cycle of cinema is not one year. You know, if you had to pick the best movie of a decade, when the decade was over, you wouldn't necessarily pick any of the best picture winners for any of the particular years of that decade. You might pick something that made a longer, slower impact. Okay? So I think we need to get out of the mindset of what's big now and look at art in terms of what impact is it having. Who is seeing it? What are they saying? Is there any more to it than that? Is there a greater impact? Is there a greater influence? Things like that. Because art is for the ages. Uh, the ultimate audience of art is God, I, I, I read somewhere. Uh, I think I posted about that on the, the Content Blues blog. So, yeah. Let's expand our minds with cinema, everybody. That's really the point I'm trying to make. Just that simple. Also, you should watch Streets of Fire and the Irishman. That's it. I have nothing else to say. Everyone have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and I'll put new episodes out next year, next month. As it happens. Thanks for stopping by.